Amen. You can be seated. As you're finding your seat, if you would, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word or the, prayer, the Bible journal that you got this morning and look with me at the very beginning of the book of Galatians. If you're not completely familiar with the layout of the Bible, the New Testament is toward the backside of the book, and Galatians is sort of near the middle of the New Testament. Um, you can find it the way that I always do, which is I find Romans and I keep turning until Galatians comes up by going General Electric Power Company. That's how I remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I don't know why some sweet Sunday school teacher at some point in my life stuck that in there, and it's still there. Well, as we're beginning this new year and looking forward to this new study, we also uh, recognize that, that the Lord Almighty has granted us this new year with new opportunities and possibly new trials, and we want to receive everything He gives us as our wise Lord. We want to uh, be, be ready to receive uh, with expectant hearts all that he has for us. So we want to come with that attitude both into this year and into this text. And so I'm going to read the first five verses of Galatians chapter 1 as our introduction to this book. Remembering that this is God's holy word. It's both inerrant and sufficient for all our needs. The Bible says in Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We thank the Lord for His holy word. Well, what would you do to protect somebody that you loved who was in danger? I read an interesting story this week that really kind of caught me off guard. I read about a viral video that a lady had shared on social media She's a, a student uh, in, in higher education. She was from the state of Virginia, but she had traveled uh, to Bali, Indonesia to do a, a study abroad program. And as she began to, to kind of get her bearings in the area, she found herself one day exploring and found herself at the beach. And she, she saw in the water this amazingly beautiful animal. And she reached in and picked it up and held it for a moment. She, of course, like we do these days, if there's no picture, it didn't happen. Uh, she began to video herself holding the, the, this, this beautiful animal um, and then uh, put it back in the water and sent the video out to the universe. Um, and so she began to get comments from uh, her social media followers who said, you, 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 may, you may want to uh, check and make sure that we're right on this, but um, what you were holding in your hand looks like a, a blue-ringed octopus, which is the single most venomous creature on planet Earth. And it's true. That's exactly what she had held in her hand. The, the, the blue-ringed octopus is so venomous that it, one, contains enough venom in it to kill 26 full-grown human beings. And their bites are so small and almost imperceptible that normally the people die and then they have to figure out why it happened before they realize that that's what had killed them. As I thought about this, this woman's brush with death, if you will, 
I read a little further and she wrote in a follow-up social media post that they were all her friends were right. That's what it was. She was thankful to have another day of life. And she just spent several hours on the phone with her dad crying, which was the appropriate thing to do at that moment. But I couldn't help but wonder to myself, what do you think her dad would have done if he had been present and known what that was? Do you think he would have responded callously or coldly? Or do you think he might have been a little bit, shall we say, firm in his love toward his daughter to protect her in that moment? I know I sure would be a little bit uh, amped up or aggressive or, or, or protective. And I bet you would too. Uh, to defend people that we love, sometimes we need to do some things that, that, that come as a strong response. And that it's not only physical safety. You know, as well as I do, that ideas have deadly consequences, that ideas have consequences, and that bad ideas have victims. What, so, what if someone you knew and loved right now believed something to be true about the world and about God, that if they embraced that lie, that belief, they would actually be positioning themselves as the enemies of Almighty God? What if with that, that wrong belief about God in the world, they, they were setting themselves as rebels against him and incurring justice on themselves, the right wrath of God? Would, would that motivate you to plead with them vigorously? Well, that's the exact situation in the letter to the Galatians. This is Paul at his most vigorous in this letter. You can't read Galatians without being confronted by the reality that Paul is impassioned in this letter, that he is lit up. He is longing to protect the sufficiency of salvation by Christ crucified alone and to protect this church that he loves from error that will kill them and not just in this life, but eternally. A.W. Tozer once wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In Galatians, Paul wants to clarify what these churches have in their minds and hearts about God. There's a threat in the palm of their hands right there in front of him. And it matters eternally that the threat doesn't destroy those churches. The whole book of Galatians is about how God saves people. That's the theme. That is something that you and I should take very seriously. Because if we're wrong on that, it's not just an idea. It's an eternity. Well, in the first message that we're going to hear today or that I'm going to deliver today in this new series, I want to do a little bit of background work on the book of Galatians to help us kind of come to the table ready to eat each week. I want to give you some, some overview, some understanding of the whole letter as we, as we work through it. There'll be more that we have to expose over the coming weeks that we'll need to bring in and kind of do a running introduction throughout the, the coming weeks. But today I do want to take just a few moments to, to give a little bit more intentional uh, overview. You know how when you're going to go somewhere these days, you, everybody who's maybe older than 40 or 50, you, you may remember paper maps very well. Right? You'd go to the AAA, they'd give you the map, and it would, 
they, they, would have, they, they would have a book or a map that was your whole trip. So if you could imagine, for those of you who are my digital friends, uh, if you could imagine that your phone was made out of paper and that the map on there, you know like the first screen when you get on Google Maps and like it's like the overview of your trip? That was what you got from the, from the AAA people. Like they would give you a map of your whole trip and then you could see, kind of highlighted through there, where you were going to go. And it helps, I've learned through the years, to actually look at the whole trip before you start making turns left and right because you kind of want to know where you're going. And it's not a whole lot different when you come to a book in the Bible. When you study it, it's very helpful to get an overview to understand the whole thing. One way of doing this is by listening to the, to the, the, the audio Bible version of it all in one sitting, uh, to, to kind of work your way through getting an overview of where is this going. Um, so this morning, the first thing we're going to do is try to get that trip summary about the, the Galatians letter. And then we're going to put our car in gear and we're going to make it as far as the end of the driveway. And that may not seem like far, but I promise the trip is going to be awesome, uh, even just down the driveway. Uh, there's lots to see even here. And so I, I really do hope that you'll make time each week to come back and be with us and make it a priority to be as many as the Lord would allow you to be at, to be at our time of studying this book together. It will be worth your time. I, I can't wait to see what the Lord does here. Um, so let's introduce the, the letter. Galatians has six chapters. You can just flip through it real quick and see there are six chapters in the book of Galatians. There are 149 verses, which is rather small um, comparatively. There are about 3,200 words in the ESV version of the book of Galatians. And just for your knowledge, you can print the entirety of the book on a single page of paper, front and back, nine-point font with half-inch margins. I did it, right? So this is all of Galatians in my hand, all six chapters. You can do that too and have Galatians with you everywhere you go. It takes about 20 minutes to read, about 20 minutes to read, which is about two and a half basswood sermons, right? So the, it, you could work your way through. Uh, you, could, you, could, uh, by, uh, you could read it two and a half times during a basswood sermon is what I meant to say. Uh, you, you, you can work your way through the book of Galatians multiple times this morning if you get bored. Like, just start reading. Work your way to the back. Start over at the beginning and see how far you get. You could take a 20-minute walk every day this week. A 20-minute walk. Not a 30-minute walk, but a 20-minute walk every day this week. And you could come back next week having read the entire book multiple times. Uh, more than a half dozen times. I wonder how well the argument and the logic of this book would be in our heart and mind if we did something like that. If we endeavored to put this book into our heart and our mind by repeating it over and over and over again, I think with the Spirit's help that we'd have Galatians running down in our bones, which would not be a bad thing for us. If we gave ourselves to studying and to learning and even to memorizing this book, there may be opportunities in the coming weeks that we might indulge kind of some, some encouragement toward memorization of passages as we work our way through these chapters. Well, who wrote the book of Galatians? Thankfully, the Bible tells us, so we don't have to ask the scholars. We can just look and see what the Bible says. The Bible says right at the beginning, the first word of the book is Paul. Uh, he is the author of the book. And in my studies this week, I actually was kind of floored because it turns out that almost all scholars agree that Paul wrote Galatians. They've got other things they fight about, about the book, but there are very few 
uh, scholars of any stripe who don't think Paul wrote this particular book. Now, I think it's important to remember who Paul is because we say Paul, you know that's a church name, and so your brain pings that, files that in an uninteresting category and moves on, right? But think with me for just a moment about who the apostle Paul actually was. In his early life, Paul, the apostle Paul, was named Saul. That was Shaul. He was named after King Saul. That was his name. And he was a highly educated and widely trained Jewish scholar and activist. I'm using those words on purpose because I think they actually fit closer to what he was in our day as we think about that. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He was the prized pupil of the most respected rabbi in the whole world. His name was Gamaliel, who was the son of the previously most respected rabbi in the whole world, Rabbi Hillel. And Paul was his prized student. He was a man with every kind of qualification that anyone could ask of a Jew. He had a pristine pedigree and he had deep, deep commitment. Paul lived in the Hellenized Roman world, the the Roman Empire. He was also a Roman citizen. During during his era, the language, the currency, the trade, the transportation, the legal system, the government, and the military of Rome united diverse nations into one body politic that spanned the whole known world of that day. It was for the first time in human history that so many different ethnic groups could coexist and cooperate broadly without relying on war as the first bargaining chip. In his world, Paul was an up-and-comer. He was a power mover. He was an influencer. Uh, He was the kind of guy that other people wanted to be. And he was being sent on missions by the Jewish authorities to squash Christianity. That's the task that he had undertaken. You can turn to Acts and read all about this. If you're following the Bible reading plan that the church just began this morning, the the, uh, Murray McShane plan, we're started in Acts 1. By the time you get to Acts 7, Paul is violently pursuing Christians house to house so much so that when Stephen is stoned, he's standing there receiving the coats and, and affirming all that's going on. He wants to squash all of Christianity, and he's known for it. We're going to see in the book of Galatians that his reputation preceded him and that made him hard to trust early on in his ministry days. But this man who was committed to destroying Christianity in one of the most unbelievable sovereign moves of grace had an encounter while he was on his way. We call it the Damascus Road experience because we don't know how else to talk about it, but in your mind that churchifies it, right? He's on his way to Damascus to hurt Christians. And while he's on his way with other people in tow, a light from heaven erupts in such a powerful way that the Bible says that literally the light knocked Paul and all his companions to the ground. He's making his way on the Damascus road in sovereign grace grabs a hold of him. This this moment transforms Paul. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him, but he mentions it. It's mentioned three times in the book of Acts. 
And it's mentioned three times in Paul's letter, twice in uh, 1 Corinthians and then once in the book that we're in. In Acts, it's chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26. You can see Paul's conversion account. But Jesus himself comes to Saul at that time in a blinding light and announces with a voice that is to be heard, that, that Paul hears. He, and he is told that this is Jesus whom Saul is persecuting, who's come. And he calls Saul to leave his life and follow him. And Saul does it. It's the most unthinkable thing. All of his former life is turned around in a moment. All of those accreditations I just told you about. All of that life purpose and mission that we just thought about are turned around in a moment. What an amazing picture of repentance we get from Paul's life. Only the work of the Spirit could get credit for something like that. Paul's calling was directly from Jesus. Jesus showed up and called him, and that's why he bears the authority of an apostle. Apostle's not something like, you know, hey, you know, Brother Bob, how are you doing? And, and he'd refer back to his friend and say, oh, Apostle Matt. Like, you don't say, that's not the kind of, like, friendly title. It's a formal title. And it is formally of those who were called by Jesus. And so Paul bears the authority of an apostle. He was called and sent out by Jesus. After a season of preparation in Paul's life, we're going to read all about this in Galatians. So I'm not going to tell you all the details. But Paul was sent out by the Spirit and by the, the church uh, to begin spreading the message of Jesus that he once persecuted, he's now going out to spread that message to the Gentiles. It really is an unbelievable change. The letter that we've got before us are to the churches of Galatia. And Galatia was both a Roman province, like an area on a map, and an ethnic people group. So it, Galatia sat somewhere around what we think of as modern Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and there's kind of a band right in the middle that was Galatia. There was North Galatia and South Galatia, kind of like North Carolina, South Carolina. Uh, there, were, there, were, there were kind of two divisions. And there was an ethnic people group that apart from necessarily geographic location were known as the Galatians. It was interesting to me to learn this week that the, the Galatians are connected both to the Gauls of France and to the Celts of England and Ireland, like the, the Celtic people. Like there was a transmigration through Central Europe down into Asia Minor that involved, this is kind of a, a, a seedy backstory about the Galatians, right? That involved uh, Celtic mercenaries who were being hired by an, a, a king uh, that was a regional king of, a, of this particular region of Asia Minor. And he brought them in um, as mercenaries and they stayed. And that was 200 years before Paul ever got there. <laughs> and then Paul shows up and there are these Galatian people the Galatian people who are there. But on Paul's first missionary trip with Barnabas that you can read about in Acts chapter 13 and 14, on his first missionary trip, he swings through this southern part of Asia Minor and he, and he stops at several cities in uh, Galatia, the region of Galatia. And he stops at the cities of Derbe and Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch, all in the region of Galatia. 
Paul only notes in our text to us that he's writing to the Galatian churches, so you may want to know that this is one of the areas that scholars like to get a little kerfuffle about. Was he writing to the North Galatians or the South Galatians? Was it these churches on his first missionary journey? Or was it churches later on his other missionary journeys that were further north? And that actually kind of plays into the dating question as well. Uh, I actually think the content of Galatians helps with that. You don't have to, you can go read about this and make up your own mind on some of these things, but I'll just share my own thoughts on it. I thought about it a good bit this week. Uh, Paul spends a lot of his time in the letter to the churches at Galatia discussing circumcision and its role in the Christian life and whether the old covenant law has any part in our life. And you'll remember from Acts chapter 15 that that is something that the the Jerusalem council takes up explicitly, right? And we can date the Jerusalem council pretty pretty close to around AD 49. We kind of know around when that happened. And so scholars would say, so if that has already happened, then Paul should probably, or would probably, this is a guess, I know, but would probably mention that the, the, the council has decided what we should do on this. But nowhere in Galatians does he ever mention the Jerusalem council at all, which leads many scholars, and I think I agree, to believe that it, this is before the Jerusalem council, maybe shortly before, maybe right before, maybe like a year before, maybe the same year, but that he's gone on his missionary journey, he's on his way back, or maybe he's made it all the way back to Antioch, and he's, he's, he's writing before he goes to Jerusalem for the council to tell them to help them settle this issue, but it's not yet been a part of the Jerusalem council that happens in Acts 15. That's my take on that. And if that's true, if I'm right, and if these scholars are right, uh, then that puts this around 48 or 49, which makes it one of the earliest books in the New Testament, maybe the earliest book in the New Testament. There's some question about where Mark falls and all that, but, but it's one of the earliest and certainly the earliest of Paul's letters that we have. So Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. Got it? That's where we are. We've kind of done a broad overview of some of that. Thinking about the content, we're going to see in this this letter that not long after Paul takes that missionary journey and comes through Galatia, that whole region and those cities, not, I mean, like right on his heels, there's, there's another group of teachers that follow along behind him, claiming the authority of other apostles and wanting to tell the Christians at these newly founded churches that, well, Paul had, a, had an idea about Jesus, and Jesus is important, and, and you, you can't be saved without him, but you kind of have to have the old covenant signs to go with him. You had to add something to the gospel, and that was obedience to Old Testament law, particularly the covenant sign of circumcision. That was required for salvation. That was necessary to be really saved. So those false teachers was, were saying that it's Jesus plus keeping the law if you're really going to be saved. And you know that's a fatal error. You don't, need a, you don't need to think for very long to know that if you add anything to the work of Christ on your own and think that that's meritorious on your part, you are not only diminishing the work of Christ, you are perverting the gospel itself. That's Paul's whole point in this book. That's a fatal error. If we think we can add something that is a part of our salvation... We have completely misunderstood what Jesus did. The letter to Galatians can be roughly divided into thirds. This is a helpful way of thinking. This is not a comprehensive outline, but this to me was very helpful. The first couple of chapters, Paul is dealing with his apostleship, his, his credibility as somebody to be authoritative in talking about these things. First couple chapters. Then chapters three and four, 
Paul is dealing with the actual question, the theological issues. He's teaching, if you want to call it the, the, um, the, the, the truth part of, or the, 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 the theology part of the book. Uh, Paul is dealing with the, what needs to be known about the gospel of grace and particularly how it relates to the Old Covenant. And then roughly, chapters 5 and 6, though it's not a clean cut there, uh, there, there's kind of interspersing, chapters 5 and 6 really deal with applying all that truth into Christian life. So we see that indicative and imperative uh, pattern that Paul sets in other books play out in the same sort of way here. One thing that I think it's important for you to know going in, the reason that I opened with the discussion of the blue-ringed octopus, is that Paul comes off strong in Galatians. There are going to be Sundays where we sit together and think, whoa, Paul said that? Uh, he, he comes off forceful. His tone uh, is like a parent trying to rescue a child from danger. But sometimes that's the most loving thing you can do, is to speak clearly and plainly in a way that may risk offense. Overall, that, the letter that we've got in front of us is an impassioned plea for the Galatians to keep the one true and saving gospel central. Well, maybe you already know some of Galatians. Uh, there may be verses that are popping up in your mind right now that are favorite verses of Galatians. A few that just came to mind in, in my own head, things that people, I've heard people quote a lot. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then it says later in that verse, by works of the law, no one will be justified. You remember Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Maybe you remember Galatians 3.13. R.C. Sproul preached one of my favorite sermons ever on this text. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. One of the more misinterpreted or applied verses in Galatians is 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One that you may have sung as a child. Galatians 5.22 and 23. If you start humming, we might all sing along. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. In Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we faint not. You may have your own favorite verses from the letter to the Galatians. There are lots more. It's full of powerful and gracious words of life for us. But this book is such a gospel-clarifying letter that I just want to press out of the gates. Basswood, we need the letter to Galatians. We are in days where so many ideas are screaming at us to give us their attention everywhere we go, to, to pull our eyes off of Christ on urgent issues. And I want to encourage us that we will not grow to full maturity in Christ by constantly attending only to the urgent. That we have to be intentional about focusing our hearts and our minds and believing the good news of Christ's gospel, and applying that very same gospel to the urgent issues of the day. 
The reformer Martin Luther loved this little book of the Bible. I've told you it's fiery. If you know anything about Luther, you know he was fiery. Right? When, he, when he talked about the book of Galatians, he compared it, his affection for that book to his affection for Katie Von Bora. Do you remember Katie? It's his wife. Right? So Luther went and, and kind of, I'm going I'm to use a little stronger uh, verbiage, but like stole a nun. Right? Like, so he, he, he actually married, uh, rescued, and we'll use that word, res, rescued uh, Katie from her, her life as a, as a nun as soon as he began to see the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, for what he understood it to be, he rejected everything, including his vows as a monk and his his um, and and he he took a wife. Um, but he loved Galatians, he says, like he loved his wife. This is a quote from him: "The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it, I am as it were in wedlock. It is my Katie." So in the Bible. When he looked for something he loved as much as he loved his wife, this was the book that helped and encouraged him. And you know that alongside the book of Romans, this book, both of those books, have the doctrinal seed and foundation that actually sprung forth into the fruit of the Reformation itself. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, that is, that is the, the warp and woof of this book. And that is the doctrine that was the linchpin of the Reformation. The whole thing stands or falls on that truth. And that truth is central to this book that we'll be in. So we plan to spend the next several months studying this gospel-centered letter. And I think it's going to be a great opportunity. I want to encourage you early on to consider how speaking the truth of the gospel plainly with each other through this book might impact those around you who are confused on the gospel. This may be an opportunity. Uh, for you to bring those who have confusion or just don't know about the gospel of Jesus Christ to be a part of your life as you help them understand what we're learning here together. All right, so let's put the car in gear. We've done a little background. Let's put the car in gear and we're going to pull to the end of the driveway. All right, so it's kind of like driver's lessons. Um, we'll, we'll get as far as the end of the driveway. The right foot is the gas. Um, both pedals are the right foot, kids. Who are, it's the pedal on the right. All right, Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. You know, all first century or most first century letters follow the same basic pattern. There's an opening which mentions the sender and the recipients. It gives the sender and the recipients and a greeting. And then there's a blessing that normally follows that. Um, and then there's a body of the letter, and then there's practical exhortation, and then there's a closing. That is a traditional pattern for a first century letter. And many of those elements are here in Paul's letter. But if you were listening carefully, you'll notice that, that it's a little more muted, we'll say, than all of his other letters. There's, Paul's greeting here is a little bit shorter, and there's no thanksgiving uh, he, he doesn't do that here. He doesn't mention their great love or their great um, hope or their great faith or anything like that. Paul begins his letter in a way that communicates, I have something very important to say, and I'm moving straight to that. We have to talk. Uh, when, when, I, um, when I asked my wife's dad if I could have her hand in marriage, this is a joke that runs through our family, so I'm putting myself out there to you. Um, when, when, when I... I drove from Birmingham, Alabama, up to the Red Lobster in Oak Ridge that still exists. I sat down with Ken Glass at a table and had, began to have lunch. We talked for a long time 
about my family, about my parents. And I, I assumed he knew I wasn't just in the neighborhood because I drove that morning from Birmingham, Alabama and asked him if I could talk to him. So I, I thought maybe we were on the same page, but we were talking a lot about my family. And I made one of the most, uh, I don't know, clumsy transitions in, in I, I literally stopped him mid-sentence and said, I didn't come here to talk about my mom. <laughs> And, and then moved right into talking about uh, how much I loved his daughter and what. But I, I stopped my future father-in-law and said, I didn't come here to talk about my mom. Um, gentlemen, have more tact than that. I'd just suggest practice. Practice on somebody who loves you, who will help you think through those things. Paul makes a very strong transition. He goes right into the point. He doesn't sit around dilly-dallying. He wants to get to the point right away. And so there's, there are things that are missing in this introduction that actually tell us something about the letter and how he's going to speak. He begins by calling himself Paul, which we've already talked about. Then he moves to, to, to labeling himself as an apostle, which we've mentioned some. But, you know, the, the, that's his favorite way to identify himself. He, he uses the word apostle in eight of his epistles as an introduction of himself. It's the second word in the letter. In, in the original, it just says Paul, apostle. And I can't help but think that his authority as an apostle is on full display out of the gates. He wants them to remember that this is not just some generic messenger bringing some generic message, uh, but that in Paul's case, he wants to make it plain. And he goes on to say, look at the text, that, he, that his apostleship did not originate from men or through men. His credentials were not stamped by the hands of men. Paul's apostleship, unlike the supposed credentials of the other people who had come behind him, the other the teachers who had come into Galatia, Paul's credentials were given by Jesus Christ, by God himself. They did not come from man, uh, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And you know that the Bible itself, this is not just true of this letter to Galatia at that day, but the Bible itself is the apostolic witness of God. It is the testimony, the, the testimony of who God is and what he has done and what he wants from humanity. So that everything in your Bible is breathed out by God. It carries the authority that Paul is leaning into here, the authority of the apostle who's speaking on behalf of God. Your Bible is God's word. And you should understand it to be so. We should receive everything that we read and hear from the Bible with the greatest seriousness and with great joy as we obey. The authority of the entire Bible, like Paul's message here, is not from or through men. It's not where the authority comes from. The authority is God. But look also that, that Paul links Jesus and the Father right here at the very beginning of the text. It's, it's interesting to me that right out of the gate, through Jesus Christ and God the Father, Jesus' authority is God's authority. Jesus is God. Christianity is not just a movement built around a personality or some kind of teacher or teaching. Christianity is the revelation of God the Father through God the Son, by God the Spirit. So there in the first verse of this letter, Paul's already pointing to the work of Jesus as one of the central things he's going to spend some time talking about. Right out of the gates. The work of God 
is on display here. What is that work through Jesus Christ? This is his apostleship. God, uh, through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. There's the work of Christ on full display. The resurrection is being pointed at there. He wants it in their minds that Jesus is not just a martyr who died or just a teacher who had some things to say, but is even now living and reigning as king. So then the first section sort of ends. He notes that he's got brothers with him. At verse 2a, Paul says, and the brothers, uh, and all the brothers who are with me. And he doesn't tell us exactly who those are, but I think there's some educated guesses that we could make at who the brothers are. That If Paul has made it back to um, the, the church, uh, then this could be that Antioch, the sending body, uh, is standing in testimony with Paul and saying, hey, we all have the concerns that Paul is saying here. But even as Paul begins this letter mentioning uh, the, there, there are brothers with him. I began to think, here's Paul who says his authority is from Jesus, who really does have the credibility and authority to speak in an authoritative way, and yet chooses to identify himself as one of the body of Christ. He's with brothers. It reminds me, he's not a Lone Ranger Christian. And there are no Lone Ranger Christians. Solitary Christians are not a thing. The body of Christ is connected across the world and across time. So the Christians that Paul is referring to here were the brothers of the people in Galatia as well, and of Paul. So even right out of the gates in this first section, even in these verses that seem to, 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 to be formal, uh, I think we can make some pretty um, helpful applications. First, just ask yourself, on the authority of the Bible that Paul came with, are you submitted to the authority of God's apostolic word in the Bible? Are you submitted to the Word of God as authoritative? I think that's going to show up in how we treat it, don't you? I think it will show up in the way that we treat God's Word. Is it something that I feel obligated to? As in a, a thing to tick off my list? Or is it something that I understand to be to have absolute authority and to have absolute truth inside of it? How do you treat the Word of God? How are you thinking of it as you start this year? Is it more important to you than your daily bread? Is, is God's Word more important to you than how you're going to spend your Christmas money? Or what you're going to do this coming year? It needs to be a priority to us. We've got to recognize that God's Word is God's revelation of Himself. And He is what we need. And he reveals himself through his word. So we ought to come to it hungry and eager and ready to receive truth about God. But second, like Paul, pointing right to Jesus being raised from the dead, I wonder, is Jesus where you start everything in your life? Is that where you are basing all of your thoughts and decisions and processes through? How, how does this relate to my confidence that Jesus has answered my greatest need. And then third, are you connected to a local body? And I hope you are. Many of you are covenant members who are sitting here today. But are you connected to a local body in an explicit and intentional way? Is, is it just a formality? It's just where you go on Sundays? Or are you committed, not just in 
on the membership role, but in your, in your living, are you connected and committed to a body? I think, in, I think that's a part of the way that God grows Christians, is accountability to one another. And I think until we submit ourselves to that, I think in some ways we, we think we've got a better plan than, than what the Word has for us laid out. That we ought to be a part of each other's lives in a way that is committed and in a way that is explicit. So if our first question is, says who, we're looking and we see that the answer is Paul. We also see in the second half of verse 2 uh, that, that this letter is to be delivered and read and likely shared between the churches of Galatia. And so Paul m- mentions that this is going out to the churches at Galatia. Um, and I, I just think it's interesting that even at the beginning of this letter, like he does in 1 Corinthians, uh, he's, he's assuming the best of these people. So if you and I were on social media today tweeting about the kinds of things that uh, the, the churches at Galatia are going to be accused of, the word heretic would pop up a lot. If that, that's just the way people talk today. As soon as you disagree with me, you're a heretic, right? So there, we, have, we have a very short fuse and a very small bell curve for what that means. And there are heretics in the world, and I don't want to diminish that at all. Uh, but I also just recognize that Paul is assuming from the very beginning that these are churches, that these are Christians, that these are people who've been rescued by grace. Now, they are in danger of shipwrecking their faith, and he's going to be direct. But he's also starting with the assumption that these are Christians, biblically legitimate as churches. And that should be encouraging, but it should also be a warning. He's writing a letter to churches to warn them that they are going in a direction that would show that their faith is somewhere other than Jesus. And these people are churches. So while he's starting with the assumption that they're in, he's warning them that they may prove themselves to be out. I just want to call to mind the fact that these churches are on the brink of something that if they believe it would would show that they themselves are not actually trusting in Christ. And I think in that way, if you've ever been... Uh, we don't do it as much around here. When we lived in Alabama for a long time, tornado drills were a really big deal, and there were lots of tornado sirens. Every town had them. They were all over the place. Um, but when a tornado warning comes through and a tornado is coming and those sirens go off, it's an alert. There's something that could kill you coming your direction. And in that way, Galatians is kind of a tornado siren. It's a warning about getting the gospel wrong. I think that we ought to consider the fact that these churches, we should be encouraged that he thinks of them as churches, but we should also realize uh, that, that there are churches today and that Lord prevent this from happening, but that this, even this church could apostatize. That, that is possible if we were to lose our grasp on the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. So on the encouragement side, can I just say, we, we, when we live in a day where everything you say is now online and in public and can be kind of an- examined from multiple different angles, uh, it can be embellished, it can be scrutinized, um, I, th- I think it's probably going to be incumbent on us to assume the best of others to begin with. So there are, there are plenty of examples of people walking away from the faith, but I think the right posture to start with is if they profess Christ, we want to start with the assumption they mean that and then examine it and see if it's true, see what it is. But it would be the wrong thing to start with. Everybody's a heretic that disagrees with me. 
That's not what Paul did, and I think we'd be wise to check that impulse in ourselves. But I also, that, that may sound to some like, oh, Matt, Matt wants us to think, well, I just want to be careful about how we treat people. But I do want to warn you, as I did a moment ago, that there are lots of churches who are growing soft on truth, who are abandoning the gospel, who are showing themselves to be those who appeared faithful for a season, but were actually trusting something other than the one true gospel. And I want you to hear me say, no church is above being warned. No church. The Bible is filled with warnings for Christian people. Not this church, not any other church. And let me warn you now, all your Christian heroes could fall. It's absolutely true. So do not put your faith in men. Put your faith in God through Christ. And also, let that be, serve as a warning to us. Be willing to examine your own heart. Be willing to serve uh, others by, by speaking words of truth to them. So just here at the beginning, we see this is a church in Galatia. And then these, these three verses uh, that we've got here, three, four, and five. Paul does what a good communicator does. You, you tell them what you're going to tell them. You tell them, and then you told, tell them what you told them. And here is Paul at the beginning of his letter telling them what he's going to tell them. Um, it seems kind of like a formality, but it's actually a pretty good summary of the whole message of the book. When he says, grace to you and peace. Those aren't throwaway words. Those aren't like an attached signature to the letter that Paul sent. Like, hey, if, if, I could get my, if I could get my signature attached by somebody else, just make sure it says grace and peace. That's how I do it. Um, this is not just a formality. Those two words were linked to Paul's understanding of the blessed life. It was grace of God and peace of God. Do you remember the blessing that Aaron gave in Numbers chapter 6? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift His countenance upon you and give you peace. The definition of the life of blessing is grace and peace. To know God's grace and experience God's peace is the place that the human heart is most blessed. So that word grace, you know it as charis, it's unmerited goodwill, it's freely given, it's decisively effective in the saving work of Jesus Christ. You know that word peace or Irene, which is where we get the, the, the female name Irene, uh, Irene. It's linked to the Hebrew word shalom, and it describes wholeness, wholeness brought about by God's Grace. So grace and peace at the very beginning of the letter are actually a summary of the entire letter. Paul bookends the entire letter with the same idea. In Galatians 6.18, he ends the letter in the last verse by saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Where does that grace and peace come from? Look at the next part of that verse. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the one God who is Father and Son and Spirit, we're going to see uh, in this book, uh, is where the, the source of grace and peace is. Uh, Paul is going to give us lots of details about the Spirit's work, but he here points to the work of God and the Son, God the Father and the Son. And when he mentions the Son, it calls to mind for Paul that this is the one who gave himself for our sins. In verse 1, he mentioned the resurrection. 
Here in this verse, he's pointing to Jesus suffering for sin on the cross. Jesus gave himself for us. And as we've seen over the last few weeks in the book of Hebrews, it's not just his cross that is his suffering. He came. It is his whole life. It is his, his, his uh, enfleshment in the virgin's womb, that he lived a human life, that he suffered and died for our sins. All those things are him giving himself for us. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In giving himself for our sins, I think we see the unthinkable weight of sin itself. If you've been car shopping in recent months, you realize that the prices are kind of crazy. Or house shopping, either one, right? The, the prices are crazy. And I, my, one of my brother-in-laws always says, it's, it's worth what someone will pay for it, right? So that, that he's, he's kind of the ultimate free market guy, and I, I agree with him in a lot of things. And so he, he, he just says the price is what, what someone's willing to pay for it. When you think of your sin, what do you think that costs? There is not enough blood from lambs and bulls to pay that back. It took the blood of the eternally begotten Son of God to pay for our sin. When we think of the weight of our sin, every sin, not just the ones we think of as, well, that had big consequences, so it must be big, but that one had a few consequences, so it must be little. No, every sin, every act of rebellion against God requires the very blood of the Son of God as a satisfactory payment. There is nothing else that will pay for it. There is nothing else that can atone for it. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing. There's no way to get that clean except by the blood of the Son. So do you see the immeasurable cost of your sin? Every sin. Every single one of them. Jesus paid the price fully for the sin for anyone and everyone who puts their hope in Him and turns to Him as Lord. That's a key theme of this letter. Paul, right here in this seeming introduction to the letter, is already saying Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins. You can't do anything to add to that. Salvation comes entirely by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Listen, your sins are addressed by the blood of Jesus or they are not addressed at all. They will be dealt with by the wrath of God. And so listen, around here we cling to the gospel of grace as if we don't have anything else because we don't have anything else. <laughs> we mean that. Jesus gave himself for our sins and he did it to deliver us from this present evil age which tells us that when Jesus came, history was forever altered. The purpose of the work of Christ was our individual salvation, but he also changed history. He inaugurated a new moment in the history of the universe so that while we are still living in this present evil age, we have been rescued from it and from its consequences even as we await his return. Christ rescues us from this age even though we are not pulled out of it. 
Later in the letter, Paul is going to tell us how to live in this present evil age. How is it that Christians ought to live? And we, we will see that we are to walk in step with God the Spirit, not according to the flesh, which is the energizing force in our heart uh, for this evil age. All of that rescue happens, Paul says, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There's an error that happens sometimes where people talk about the Old Testament God as the mean God and Jesus made the mean God happy and, and this kind of mental image of setting God the Father against God the Son as though they were at odds. Right here at the very beginning of this letter, all of our redemption is, given credit to, is giving credit to the will of God. God willed that he would save us. There is no division in God. There is no division in God whatsoever. All of our salvation springs from the will, the love, and the grace of God. Redemption is God's plan. It is God's grace enfleshed in Christ, and it is applied to us by His Spirit. And that truth sets God apart and shows God as the most glorious being in the entire universe. So that we stand staggered with a text that we read multiple weeks in a row over the last few weeks. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So that this whole plan of redemption is meant to glorify God and not just now, but forever and ever Amen. And that little final word in verse 5, that word amen, it can feel so small. Sometimes we think of that as like pushing the, the end button on the phone call. Right? Like it's just the thing you do at the end. When you're, when you're done, you're going to hang up. You're like, amen. That's like, I, I hung up. Um, Christian, you ought to recognize you, you should never hang up. Your life should be an open line with the Lord. But beside that, that's not what it means. Uh, it, it means so be it, or I agree with this, or this is what I believe. It is a statement of agreement, and not just with the mind and the mouth, but with the heart and the life. When we say amen from the heart, we're saying, I not only agree with what you just said, I love it and I embrace it and I want to live it. And your life and my life ought to be an ongoing amen to the Lord. It's interesting to me that in this verse, we already see theology that is orthodox in nature leading to praise. So you get orthodoxy leading to doxology right here in this. And it ought always be that way. To learn something new of the Lord, to see it from a different angle. We ought to love what we see all the more and speak the praises of God. So how do we apply this section on grace and peace that for so many people feels like a, just an opener? Well, I hope that I've exposed some of the text and opened it up for us so that you can begin to make application for yourself. But the one that I'd like to encourage you toward is that statement of grace and peace. And I, I began to think this week, New Year's are wonderful opportunities, but they can also be fool's gold. Because you can turn a new year into like a backhanded hope for peace. Like if I just lose 20 pounds, I'll be at peace. If I, if I just get my bank account up to a certain level and have a certain amount set back, I'll have peace. If I just get this relationship question in my life figured out, I'll have peace. 
If I get this new book and, and get my spouse to read it and they agree with me, then we'll have peace. Or my kids, if I can finally get them to do what I want them to do, we'll have peace. Where are you looking for your grace and peace this year? Where are you looking for it? Because if you don't know where to look for that, you won't find it. You cannot find grace and peace anywhere other than the work of God the Father through God the Son in Christ. There is nowhere else to find grace or peace. If you go looking somewhere else, you will not find grace and peace because that's not where it is. It is found only through Christ. In fact, if you go looking other places, you will find less grace and less peace because nothing on earth was designed to give you those things. Only Jesus can do that. That sounds like, oh man, I have really good news for you today. <laughs> the Lord is good and faithful and we can always run to Jesus strong and kind. You, you could do that. He receives people who need grace and peace. If we will run to him, he will receive us. You could do that today. You could do that right now. No one in this room needs to grant you permission to run to Jesus. If you sense your need of Jesus, run to Jesus. He will receive you and he will rescue you. Paul gives the churches in Galatia and us a preview of what's on his heart in this section. And I think he's pointing us to the work of Jesus Christ as the only source, the only saving gospel, the only source of grace and peace in our life. And so any gospel that corrupts that is no true gospel. We're going to discuss that over the coming weeks. Well, friends, getting the gospel wrong has far greater consequences than holding every blue-ringed octopus on earth in your hand at the same time. Far greater consequences. To get the gospel wrong is worse. It's worse. If you get the gospel wrong, there's an eternal weight of justice that's coming. But he rescues us, and so we have such reason for thankfulness and praise and gratitude to him that he has willed to redeem every kind of sinner and any sinner that will come because his mercies are new every morning. So I wonder, as we look at this letter to the churches at Galatia, Will you, over the next few weeks, take this as God's word to you? Would you commit with me to examine the letter to the church at Galatia as if God intended you to learn from it? Examine the gospel with fresh eyes. Examine your own thoughts about grace and peace and the gospel and what, what is providing your right standing before God even now. Be willing to cry out to God to shape your heart through our time in this book. I'm praying that Galatians will lead us all to this place that we ended that section of thankful praise for the grace and peace that he's given. So would you pray with me? Let's do that now. Almighty God, you've spoken to us with such love. You've given us your perfect word. You didn't leave us in our sin. You spoke. You spoke to us by your Son 
So, Lord, I pray over the coming weeks that you, by your Spirit's work here among us, would help my friends and help me to see how great our need of Jesus is and how great the rescue of the gospel is. Lord, the good news that you have come and accomplished all that needs to be done. Spirit, would you come and work that deep into our hearts And would you use that truth to bring out of our hearts and into our lives joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. God, would you work out of us because of the truth that you have implanted into us, God-glorifying fruit. We are praying for that. We are asking that you would do it. We are asking it all in the name of Christ who is our grace and peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.